Many voices have told us that the time we live in right now is bound to memory. Late modern culture, they would say, is dominated by the problem of memory. For some, the problem of memory is intricately linked to trauma, to the most savage forms of human brutality. For others, the same memory is about healing and the ultimate powers of human forgiveness and reconciliation. But always, the problem of memory stands in the increasingly long shadow of the Shoah. We are given the command to remember, Zahor, and today is a time that we have set aside to think about memory. What is the place of that specific memory, that specific testimony in a world in which genocide, the unthinkable, has been made possible and repeated. Jeffrey Hartman was born in Frankfurt, Germany, and was placed on the kinder transport to England in 1939. He spent the war years on the estate of James Rothschild with other children who were saved from the death camps. He was later reunited with his mother in the United States, attended Queen's College, and earned his doctoral degree at Yale where he taught for almost 40 years before retiring as Sterling Professor of English and Comparative Literature. It's extraordinary when you look at his literary scholarly production. He is the author of 15 very substantial books. Among them are Criticism in the Wilderness, The Study of Literature Today, 1980, The Longest Shadow, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, 1996, The Fateful Question of Culture in 1997, and most recently, Scars of the Spirit, The Struggle Against Inauthenticity. He is also the editor of eight other volumes, and literally uh, dozens upon dozens of chapters, articles, review, reviews that make him truly a scholar of the greatest order. Indeed, some might say that Jeffrey Hartman is one of America's greatest treasures to the field of comparative literature, literary theory, and the study of the Holocaust. Um, we will find out this evening about Professor Hartman's uh, efforts to build with his colleagues uh, a video archive that was intended to provide another kind of testimony, another kind of witness to the experience of the Shoah. In an extraordinary, and I really uh, cannot underscore this enough, in an extraordinary autobiography given as the American Council of Learned Society's Haskin, Haskins Lecture in 2000, Professor Hart Hartman recalls the vitality of German-Jewish thought that unique cultural symbiosis before the Holocaust. He wrote, quote, I began to fantasize what my life would have been had the Holocaust not occurred. I would surely have stayed in Germany and studied directly with many whom I admired, Buber, Kassir, Panofsky, Adorno, Benjamin, Fromm, Simone, Glatzer, Heschel, and Arendt. My grieving for German Jewish culture was mainly in truth for myself, 
for having been separated from the life of an imagined community. It was not an abstract duty of memory, he continues, then, but a growing sense of the value of what had been lost that gradually turned me toward the Holocaust. And when I helped to establish Yale's video archive for Holocaust testimonies, I had no idea, no inkling, that it would lead to scholarly involvement. Indeed, to write about the Holocaust professionally, to do more than honor the witnesses by becoming a secondary witness through the archive project, seemed exploitative. It raised for me the question of what motives apparently disinterested scholarship. Are we not attracted, like writers of fiction, to the heart of darkness? Do we not consume the trauma of others? Or is facing a greater pain than ours the way we manage our own, often desperate awareness of an encompassing social suffering? There is perhaps no one who could best address the problem of the Shoah than Professor Jeffrey Hartman. We are very grateful to you, Jeffrey, for joining us as we recall, as a university and as a community, the Shoah. Professor Hartman's presentation, Holocaust Testimony in a Genocidal Age, takes us to the very heart of memory and its role in memory culture. Please now join me in welcoming him to our community. Thank you very much for those kind words. I am honored to be your speaker on this day on Yom HaShoah, and I thank the university and the Taubman Foundation, which have made this possible. Now, I can shout a little. I just want to make sure before I start that you can hear me if I relax. Yes, I don't have to raise my voice too much, okay? Tonight, as we approach 60 years since the end of the Second World War and the liberation of the slave labor and death camps, and after three post-war generations have come of age, I wish to discuss some crucial issues inherited from that time. They are issues confronting those living in the present as well as at present, those who do not evade the past, yet seek to sustain the energizing hope that is their very birthright. Modern historians, as Yosef Yerushalmi correctly said, are not physicians of memory, healers who necessarily reveal comforting traces of human goodness or of a divine purpose amid the atrocity and general corruption unleashed both by Hitler's war and the Shoah. But they are going about their task of documenting in irrefutable detail every aspect of what David Rousset named l'univers concentrationnaire. It was indeed a universe, all-encompassing, almost inescapable, 
a new order based on the death or enslavement not just of conquered populations as in ancient times, but of entire ethnic groups condemned to subhuman status by an apocalyptically racist ideology which also killed off disabled people as life not worthy of life. Organized murder was justified, even ennobled, by the creation of an elite, in particular the SS, whose commanders, like victorious Roman generals, so we have recently learned, were to be given the region of Auschwitz for their individual fiefdoms. Erected upon a foundation of disposable human lives, model estates would arise and create an agrarian utopia. Auschwitz, an exemplary 20th century utopia? Because a state-sponsored, mind-controlling ideology played a significant role, the task of grasping the enormity of the Holocaust could not have been accomplished without the help of psychological, sociological, and also close textual analysis. Recall, to begin with, the pioneering research of Raoul Hilberg, a political scientist whose skill in gathering and interpreting all kinds of documents, including the driest railroad schedules, discerned a pattern in the overwhelming chaos of facts we call the Shoah. He showed a sinister logic at work, how Nazi policy towards the Jews progressed from decreeing civil death, that is, their exclusion and expulsion from the national community progressed to one of concentration in ghettos after the eastern territories brought millions of Jews into the German Reich, and finally to the technologically enhanced efficiency of total genocide. Also important was Hilberg's analysis of the mental continuity between the bureaucracy of pre-Nazi Germany and the Hitler regime. This bureaucracy was not so much a civil as an uncivil service, loyal to whatever government was in power, and it supported decisively a coordinated conformity, the so-called Gleichschaltung, that implicated every citizen. Hilberg's findings are enriched by Adorno's and Horkheimer's insight that a strain of fascism lurked within the idea of social engineering associated with the Enlightenment's premise of nature's uniformity and by Hannah Arendt's understanding of totalitarianism, the way that complicity in state-sponsored crimes, not just ideology, was used as a bonding principle. Many thinkers, of course, like Orwell, Camus, and Milos, made their own contributions to analyzing in factual or fictional discourse the sinister unity, as Kenneth Burke called it, of totalitarianism, even if the focus was a despotic communism as well as Hitler's criminal regime. The testimonial challenge. Inevitably, most research centered at first on the perpetrators, with the testimony of Holocaust survivors and other witnesses gathered chiefly to that end. 
This remained the case even in Landsmann's great documentary, completed 40 years after the war. Gradually, though, by the very force of personal testimony in such undertakings as Landsmann's film, the voice and bearing as well as the words of the witnesses broke through. They were seen as individuals, rescued this time as the Israeli poet Chaim Guri remarked on hearing testimony at the Eichmann trial, rescued, I quote him, from the danger of being perceived as all alike, all shrouded in the same immense anonymity. Although the testimonies as victim stories are basically similar, and although Primo Levi pointed out that what Jewish inmates saw of the camps was severely restricted by their immediate struggle against death, the survivors could at last express their anguish openly. They conveyed through the immemorial art of storytelling the humanity and individuality denied them during years of persecution and still sidelined to an extent in the period of rehabilitation and research that followed immediately upon the war. It is this rescue of the survivors' multi-voiced memories I wish to emphasize. It should not get lost amid the mass eruption of personal memoirs in our culture. One result of our era's biopic explosion is that questions arise about such memoirs. There has always been some wariness, of course. Many years ago, one scholar called biography, and by implication autobiography, fiction under the condition of remaining true to fact. But survivor testimonies create a new genre and present a special challenge. This challenge has several aspects. Given the content of the testimonies, the willingness to listen is first of all a moral engagement. There is very little in the testimonies that is comforting, mainly the courage of the survivors in telling and so to an extent reliving their story. Arthur Frank, author of The Wounded Storyteller, writes, one of our most difficult duties as human beings is to listen to the voices of those that suffer. Moreover, if to listen to the witness is to become a witness, if that is the ideal aspired to, the sympathetic powers of those who were not there come under pressure. We feel the burden of our inadequacy. It is not ours, this death, to take into our bones, as May Sarton has written. In the omnipresence of trauma stories, though not everything is dark, but interspersed with episodes of extraordinary bravery, resistance, organizational cunning, resilient humor, in the presence of trauma stories, where do we invest are limited resources of compassion. This leads to a further aspect of the testimonial challenge. 
We who try to learn from what others have endured need to trust in the authenticity as well as veracity of such narratives. The worry about who could talk for the witnesses resolved when they began to talk for themselves instead of letting historians only or third parties talk about it. To appropriate, when they, the survivors, began to appropriate their own story, that shades into a more excruciating concern. Can even the eyewitnesses given the nature of their suffering and their experience, can even the eyewitnesses speak for themselves? Or have they been too altered by the experience? Can they talk for themselves, let alone for their companions who did not survive? Primo Levi's sad conclusion in The Drowned and the Saved that none but the dead could be the authentic, or to use his term, integral witnesses, renews a doubt we are obliged to abide, even if it cannot be totally resolved. The question, how do the living speak for the dead, recalls the role played by fiction and popular theology. The imagination often converses with the dead as well as seeming to hear them. A function of the genre of drama, according to a contemporary German dramatist, a function of the genre of drama is inquiring about the dead, and he uses the German term Totenbeschwörung, which those of you who know German is very difficult. It's conjuring up really. So I'll repeat it. A function of the genre of drama is conjuring up the dead. There is also a Yiddish tradition of going to the graveside of relatives and talking with them. But the Holocaust has left only cinders and mass graves. Is the need to address the dead as if they could answer our call? Is not this or a similar kind of imaginative construction inevitable in all acts of memorial memory? And years and years after the event, can even the historian's presumed objectivity be enough of a guarantee for a totally factual account? Why does Imre Kertege, who recently won the Nobel Prize, why does Kertege remark, the concentration camp is imaginable only and exclusively as literature, never as reality? If then a fictive supplement should enter both history writing and personal testimony, Is it possible for us to acknowledge and even value that supplement? With respect to fiction, let me recall that the political thinkers I have already mentioned, ideology critics like Orwell, Camus, and Milos, were remarkable fabulists, even if they formally separated their discursive from their inventive writings. As I describe then the importance of survivor testimony, familiar contemporary issues intrude. 
In addition to pondering the truth value of fiction in this area, we struggle against the sense of our emotional darth or lack of standing. Since we were not there, how can we aim to identify enough with the survivors to transmit their witness? Hyper-realistic media that create a specious present by recreating the camps and killing places do not lessen these basic concerns. Media productions remain, despite realistic shock effects, strangely unreal. We distrust, and rightly so, our instruments, to cite Emerson. Or we defend against images of atrocity, lest we succumb to a fascination with horror. As for the young, who are not as well defended, I strongly believe that the testimonies are as effective as any blockbuster film without subjecting them to undue and perhaps damaging psychological stress. A final challenge points to a particularly troubling characteristic of this genocidal age, but it is a challenge that survivor testimonies engage directly. I refer to a doubt about our ability to make the Shoah intelligible to ourselves. And there's hardly anyone I've ever spoke to who hasn't had this doubt. That is, by intelligible I mean consonant with our species image, our concept of the human. Because of that doubt, Lanzmann denounced what he called the obscenity of understanding and depicts what happened in his film almost entirely by non-discursive means, that is, by staging the very act of interviewing. That phrase, the obscenity of understanding, means to be scandalous. It signals a dilemma. The vast amount of information accumulated about the Holocaust has not inspired confidence confidence that any amount will bring an explanation, some actionable insight as to the why rather than the instrumental how. You may remember the camp guard's response to Primo Levi's why. Right, he does something very trivial like I think breaking off an icicle if I remember in order to quench his thirst and the camp guard you know, does like that. Here, and this is the camp guard after, after Primo Levi says, why are you doing this? Here, that is in the camps, there is no why. Coming to know the Holocaust leaves the knower feeling impotent rather than edified, so that the good in the twin good and evil of knowledge drops out. Except for unusual incidents of humane and very courageous behavior, we may be left recounting and comparing evils. The personal angle. Yet, I continue to draw some hope from the kind of work many of us are doing. What has certainly played a major part in my own reflections is a video testimony project started 25 years ago. It began in 1979 as an effort to record camp survivors, also hidden children, 
refugees and bystanders who lived through those dark times. The Fortune of Archive housed at Yale re-imports a visual element or more precisely the human face in the context of words and voice. It releases and brings back memories. It opens or wishes to open a safe space for the survivors to express themselves despite the trauma suffered. It allows them to transmit the difficult experiences characterizing a period whose desecration of human life still strikes us so many years later and despite near repetitions as inconceivable. As a medium, video testimony has its strength and, like all things, its limits. Among the strengths are that it captures the spontaneous and viva voce aspect of witnessing, not of course as a confrontation. To release difficult and often traumatic memories, the interviewer acts as a helpmeet rather than challenger. Nor is the interview setting, needless to say, comparable to an interrogation or court of law with strict rules of evidence. One of the limits is that most interviews have taken, a place, have taken place at least a generation and now two or three after the events, so that recollection struggles to prevail against both forgetfulness and an internal self-modifying narrative, a mental rewriting that is as common and half unconscious as dreaming. This may restrict factual accuracy, yet often in such interviews memories are released and spring from the survivor as if newborn with startling freshness. An additional strength, though some would call it a limit, is that survivor accounts are marked by the frame conditions and memory milieu in which testimony is later given. Memory studies are relevant, therefore, as is the work of cultural historians or sociologists, especially when the focus falls on the afterlife of the survivors in various countries, their struggle for resettlement and reintegration. Let me be quite clear about the fact that oral documentation after an initial period, I mean initially after the war, of debriefing and research, that oral documentation does not seek to turn the survivor into chronicler or researcher. While it can be oral documentation, it can be a source for perpetrator data that is not its forte, it is not its strength. Rather, it enables a witness to speak who fears the passing of witness. In general, testimonial narratives have a triple audience in mind. The world that should know, you hear that again and again in the testimonies, the world should know what has happened. The world that should know, that's the first audience. The community of victims that is rebuilding and the individual who has survived to tell us, who strives for a measure of relief and inner peace. What is indispensable then is the direct human interaction, 
the person-to-person aspect of this kind of testimony giving as it forges a living link between generations, between past and present. In the formation of that link, the role of the interviewers is particularly noteworthy. And I want to emphasize it because it hasn't been noted sufficiently. Not just because the interviewers tend to come from a successor generation and so bring with them their own cultural presupposition. That is not uninteresting, but that's not the main reason for uh, the interviewers being noteworthy. More significantly, their active participation that they are there actually interviewing, their active participation represents for the interviewee, for the person interviewed, a crucial civic dimension, a larger audience that wishes to hear and receive. Um, In the interview situation, there is the witness, the person who is giving the testimony, and one, one, if one can manage, two interviewers. But those two interviewers have a representative, not just an interrogative function. They represent the audience that wants to hear, that wants them to give the witness. So that is the larger audience. The witness's recognition of this receptiveness, something we could go into this maybe later, something they did not have so easily after the war. The witness's recognition of this receptiveness encourages the will to bear witness. The importance, therefore, of what Maurice Halbwachs named an affective community in his seminal book, The Collective Memory, needs more consideration. He means by affective community, a community which is ready to feel, which is not afraid of of, of being touched. Modern media both facilitate and complicate the issue of audience. Improved technologies of reception, and I will go into this a little bit later, improved technologies of reception, important as they are, may guarantee an audience, but not an increase in receptiveness. While video and film in particular reach an extended public, They also heighten an anxiety concerning reality, an anxiety which is the byproduct of our cancerously enlarged ability to create semblances of the real. To space conspiracy theorists, I read in the New York Times of January 11, 2004, to space conspiracy theorists, after photos from Mars were relayed back to Earth, you remember that happened in January, for those space conspiracy theorists, there was no moon landing and there's no mission to Mars, just a lot of special effects. Our capacity to produce simulacra, mechanically called up and repeated, provokes a certain caution, however urgent the subject. But let me go back to the present and to the survivor testimony project. At this point in time, the survivor interview, which in Yale's way of doing things is ascetic in a talking head format and minimally interventionist, the survivor interview preserves the aura of the person witnessing. 
The interview's reality effect is not a special effect. It remains strong. It could succumb nevertheless, and we have to be aware of this, it could succumb to overuse and stylization, and maybe you have found this when on Yom, sometimes on Yom HaShoah, a journalist goes out and said, I have to, I have to cover this, and he, he gets three survivors, and each of them give three-minute interviews, and you know, and, and so on. I mean, what, what does that, that mean after all? It's better than not having him do it, but you, you can see how stylized such an activity can become, whereas the real interview can last as long as the survivor wants it to last. You know, we have interviews up to seven hours. Uniqueness and universality. I'm going through these issues which should concern all of us at this point in time. Uniqueness and universality. I wish to focus now on the growing realization that the Shoah was not the genocide to end all genocides. To insist on its uniqueness produces bitter awareness of a repetition. The historical circumstances or motives of each later genocidal occurrence are different. The scope and duration are different, but the extreme brutality and suffering are overwhelmingly the same. Yet, I would be among the first to admit that collective traumas vary significantly. The entire historical and memory milieu can differ. The very word witness, where a systematic attempt at total genocide took place, as was the case with the Shoah, has a resonance stronger than when witnessing means primarily a vulnerable heightening of the act of observation. Although even in the murders of 9-11, we have become aware of a hatred behind the aggression great enough to turn genocidal. Each collective trauma has its own specific difference then. It is important, moreover, to underscore the impact of information technology. We have not examined carefully enough how the recording medium influences what is recorded, nor how our vastly expanded systems of dissemination Affect, affect audiences. The simulcasting of 9-11, for instance, its non-gradual, overt, time and consciousness piercing tra transmission. Think how long it, it took for the Shoah to, to, to penetrate the news. There was some activity when the camps were opened, but then there was a very long latency period. But it was not piercing and it was not simultaneously cast as happened with the 9-11 um, uh, massive murder. The fact that 9-11 was viewed almost in real time by so many via TV indicates we have entered what the French sociologist Luc Poltansky has named an era of souffrance à distance, not easy to translate distant suffering or suffering that comes to you from a distance. Images relayed from anywhere at one and the same time broadcast and universalize the specificity, however tragic and stark, of each occurrence. Indeed, this broad dissemination 
together with TV's global village effect, disturbs the work of mourning. Since TV's relentless, trans relentlessly transmitted images of misery evoke a universe of victims, is there still a way to grieve close to the actual grave or designated memorial place without that universal shadow on consciousness? One reaction may be to dig in all the more, to insist on the uniqueness of each loss, to mark and consecrate the ground where it happened. And we already sense that tension of local and global in the poet you all know about, Paul Celan. He, Paul Celan, has relinquished hope in any legacy except the expressive effect of great works of art. The way they date and place themselves, the way they convey their in situ, their situated, as well as exportable character. Playing on schlagen, the German word that describes a clock striking, or the beating heart, or beating striking in the aggressive sense, Celan formulates a paradox in his poem Corona. Repose, he says, has become impossible. Yet this very impossibility must become creative. I quote him, It is time for restlessness, unrest, to hammer a heart. And it's literally translated from the German, it would be to make a heart strike, as if telling time. No wonder Celan's words aspire to the concision, incision of dates. He wants them to toll, as it were, the very moment. Yet, with so much bad rather than hopeful news transmitted via the media's global reach, a further reaction, that of indifference, may set in. Communication devices, I've already said, guarantee reception, but not receptiveness. Celan's hammer, like the axe Kafka says is needed to break up the frozen sea within us, is a symbol of fiction's power to release and augment our limited fund of sympathy. The argument strikes home that some events of a devastating scope will also have to stand for the loss suffered by other groups without their historically specific character being forfeit. So poetry becomes at times the all-too-conscious receptacle for more than one contemporary disaster. In Celan's poem Shibboleth, which alludes to a specific date in the Spanish Civil War rather than the Shoah, the poet asks memory to lower its flag on that particular day, but to, to lower it on behalf of every day. Jacques Derrida's Shibboleth, his book on Celan, named after that poem, spells out this disconcerting universality. I want to quote Derrida. There is certainly today a date for the Holocaust we know about, the hell in our memory. But there is a Holocaust for each date, 
and somewhere in the world for each hour. Each hour numbers its holocaust. Now isn't that a disconcerting universality which I'm sure one could object to, this kind of universalization, but we also know that at one level it is true. Let me now turn to some concluding thoughts, only three of them. What hope is there? Given our intensified awareness of the presence of social suffering and a politically induced misery, what hope is there if the graceful dance of the hours turns into a dance macabre and the calendar becomes a martyrology of dates? It seems important to recognize the problematic nature of this universality, of so many days of remembrance, even today, or mourning, especially in the absence of a single comprehensive passion story. Might an overarching narrative emerge with a binding and bonding power that could unify, however imperfectly, different ethnic, national, or cultural groups, and so enable a sharing of memories? One sign of the immediate relevance of this issue is the Mel Gibson effect, the widespread dissemination and acceptance of his film. The Passion of the Christ reverts to a single highly stylized narrative that depicts a maximum of human abuse and suffering. Faithful, more or less, to the wording of the Gospels, but without any except the most general visual foundation in the Gospel text, Gibson recreates the last hours of Jesus' life. His bloody descant on Christ's scorching and crucifixion invents most of the gory detail that brings home to viewers its physical brutality. What is wrong with this effort is not that it uses cinema's hyper-real sources of pictorial magnification to shock viewers out of their comfortable position as spectators removed in time. That empathic effect could be justified as intrinsic to art, however extreme in this instance. What is wrong is that Gibson is myopic, fixed on one scene of suffering. He not only accepts the simplified political context of his major source in Matthew, but also disregards its historical reception, the reception of Matthew as a gospel, the toxic iconography of historical Jew hatred, to quote A.O. Scott, disregards the victims the Gospels have some responsibility for from the time Christianity became a secular power. Gibson's Gospel produces a divisive rather than unifying narrative, exploiting the power of film to create a specious present. It projects a Manichaean vision in which good and evil are absolutely stereotyped. The mob of Jews incited by Caiaphas, the high priest, is on the side of the powers of darkness, while Pontius Pilate, accompanied by his wary and in Gibson's portraiture compassionate wife, becomes no more than a reluctant player in the middle ground of this drama. 
taken literally, and remember that is one of Gibson's claims, taken literally, the Christian passion story has caused untold suffering to non-Christians. By his wounds are we healed, applied to the subsequent history of the Jews, a terrible irony infects those words, by his wounds are we, we are healed, infects those words from Isaiah displayed as the movie's epigraph. Why moreover would the film dwell on an unbearable flaying of the flesh unless Gibson wants public memory to suffer a violation as invasive as that inflicted on Christ's body? The bloodiness with which suffering is portrayed intends not only to compensate for the bloodless nature of so much contemporary Christian imagery, but also to rival even searing images from the Holocaust. From Gibson's perspective, the genocidal persecution of the Jews is a blip on the screen of a universal agony exemplified and potentially redeemed by one man's ordained suffering. Asked if he believed the Holocaust happened, Gibson replied, and I quote him, Yes, of course, it happened. Atrocities happen. War is horrible. The Second World War killed tens of millions of people. Some of them were Jews in concentration camps. Many lost their lives. In the Ukraine, you know how quickly he switches, in the Ukraine, several million starved to death between 1932 and 1933. During the last century, 20 million people died in the Soviet Union. End of quote. Inadvertently or not, this acknowledgement, in its transitions and undifferentiated analogies, comes close, unfortunately, to Holocaust denial. I should note, finally, that the arts have not shunned traumatic memories, and it's not that I'm saying that the cinema should not try to represent what is traumatic, not at all. That's not my point. So I should note finally that the arts have not, never, shunned traumatic memories, whether in the form of ecstatic or else intensely painful scenes. The imaginative labor resulting in the well-wrought urn of statuary, painting, film, and literary work exhibits a creative rather than repressive kind of forgetting. Each generation then, facing Medusa moments, via markers that commemorate its own or an ancient grief, renews the question, can these memories live? What public presence should they have? Even if our capacity for remedial action is limited, could we strive for at least a sort of poetic justice through cultivating and honoring a more comprehensive cultural memory? The narrow, if intense, perspective of Gibson's film, however, while it may capture our empathy, also confines it so that empathy and sympathy begin to move in opposite directions. Oral histories of the Holocaust do not seek to heat up a competition among monopolies of suffering.
but record testimony that grips rather than freezes the emotions, testimony with the strength to convey well into the future whatever on this Yom HaShoah we can bear to remember without losing hope. The educative and humanizing value of video testimonies includes allowing the witnesses their image and voice. We should not heed those among us who complain that too much attention is giving, given to the victimized. Walter Benjamin, in his last thoughts on the concept of history, argues for historical research's original role as remembrance, he says, Eingedenken. In other words, history is basically a form of remembrance. Too often, according to Benjamin, researchers of a past made present, that is his phrase, a past made present, do not stay with the affective and disturbing memory, but create a false sense of closure, a false ending, by, insin by insinuating an idea of progress that purges lament from history. Let us respect the voice of lamentation. Let us continue to create an audience for those who have had the courage to testify and who are also obligated to represent those who did not survive. I personally hope that in universities like Santa Barbara, we will find, especially at this moment, when the eyewitnesses are disappearing, and disappearing too rapidly, that we will find an expanding community of secondary witnesses who cultivate acts of attention and embody them in the literary and plastic arts as well as in historical and other scholarly pursuits. Thank you very much. <laughs>